What do exposing fads and optimizing fitness have in common? Longtime Catalyst 360 listeners know the answer. Evidence. The world of health, wellness, and performance is rife with exaggeration, unsupported claims, and charisma-dependent shortcuts. Taking an evidence-based approach to your chosen pursuit, well, we know it doesn't guarantee results. The scientific method is all about looking for the hole in the previous finding. At the same time, though, it sure is a wise cornerstone on which to build our strategy. Today, we have one of the best in the business, joining us to break through the BS on our way to a better life and enhanced performance. Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 Podcast, your trusted resource for the best in engaging evidence-based health, wellness, and performance insights. I'm your host, Dr. Brad Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and today's guest is Dr. Philip Skiba, whose credentials are loaded. He earned a medical degree from Georgetown University, a PhD from the University of Exeter, and is board certified in both family and sports medicine. He simultaneously holds roles as Director of Sports Medicine Fellowship at Advocate Lutheran General Hospital, is Regional Director of Sports Medicine for the Advocate Aurora Medical Group, is Team Physician for the University of Illinois in Chicago, and regularly works with high school, NCAA Division I, Olympic, and professional athletes. And one that many of you will recognize, the fascinating Nike Breaking 2 Marathon Project. Our paths originally crossed when I was considering pursuing a PhD at the same university Dr. Skiba had added a PhD to his medical degree. His advice was simple. If you're interested in the science and have a clear vision of what you'd like to study, go for it. I followed his advice, and as I've shared many times here, it turned out to be one of the best decisions of my life. As we tie a ribbon on our final episode of 2022, please know how grateful we are to you for spending just a little part of your valuable time with us every single week. We've grown from a handful of listeners as I recorded interviews standing up in a closed-off corner of our basement to avoid the sound of our neighbor's construction five years ago, to now being in a designated studio with download numbers that have us just outside the top 1% of all podcasts. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on this journey. We have some incredibly exciting developments just around the corner, and we're grateful to be part of your lives. As always, if you'd like to discuss anything coaching-related, from earning your MBHWC-approved coach certification as part of our next cohort that kicks off in late January, or if you're an employer, you're looking for ways to effectively not only address and support the physical, but also the emotional and mental health of your employee team members, please reach out to us. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. And now it's time to toss aside the pseudoscience and dig into the evidence that matters with Dr. Philip Skiba on the latest episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast. Dr. Skiba, this is going to be fun. We got a lot to cover, so let's jump right in. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Brad. Let's start broad and go narrow. We, we talked about offline in our world of health, wellness, and frankly, performance. Pseudoscience, for some reason, it rules the day. Why do you think that is? And what guidance do you give our listeners who say, yes, I know it's there, but I'm sick of it too. How do I, how do I avoid this stuff? No, it's a real challenge, right? Everyone's trying to sell you something. Yeah. Um, you know, more than it's almost 20 years ago that my first book came out, which was called Scientific Training for Triathletes. And right in the introduction, you know, I say that, you know, that the secret is there is no secret. Like, everyone, <laughs> That's a Faith Hill song, trying, my friend. Right. You know, everyone's <laughs> trying to sell you something. Everyone's trying to tell you that, yeah. you know, oh, if you just do this one thing, um, you're going to be healthy. If you just, just do this one thing, if you buy this one supplement, if you do this new training technique, um, you're going to uh, you're going to achieve some new level of performance or some new level, uh, new level of health or wellness. Right. And the reason why that is is that what works is so boring, 
right? You need to eat well, you need to sleep well, yep. and you need to do some exercise. Yep. And we can we can mess around the edges of what that looks like in terms of, um, you know, what should the breakdown of my sports training look like? Or um, should I have a little bit more of this or that in my diet? Um, but it's, it's just not that complicated, but people make money by making it complicated. Yeah, exactly. I, I remember there was a, uh, triathlete magazine article, uh, it was a Q and a thing and people would write in and somebody said, you know, I, it's my first triathlon, my first Ironman, you know, should I be working on heart rates and powers? And the guy responded, loved, loved, loved his answer. He said, so here's your secret, swim a lot, bike a lot and run a lot get the first one under your belt. And then we'll talk about, like you said, around the margin. So yeah, it, it is. Well, I mean, and the thing is there's this whole marketing machine behind things yeah. like Iron Man. Yeah. I spend most of my time, both as a doctor and as, you know, a coach telling people they shouldn't be doing Iron Man. <laughs> like it's, it, it's frankly too much exercise for 99% of the human population. Um, you know, I, I tell people, I mean, even just marathon runners who come to me, I'm like, you need to be training for five years just to be able to train for a marathon properly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you can, you can train to survive a marathon. Sure. Um, but you know, you, you, you've barely rid, rid, you know, run a couple of five K's and now you think you're going to, you know, go 26 miles, you've barely done a sprint triathlon and next month you want to do an Ironman. Like, you know, your, your eyes are bigger than your stomach, you right. know, have a little respect for the distance. Yeah. Yeah. And, and surviving it versus racing it are, they're different atmospheres. There's no question about yeah, it. Exactly. Yeah. It's a good reminder. Um, all right. So speaking of pursuing evidence, I, I got to know, why did you go back for a PhD after finishing medical school? I, there's, there's a larger percentage of people that might go, yeah, let me do that MD PhD program. That wasn't your strategy. You're like, I'm getting my MD. I'm there. Now I'm going back for a PhD. So why that route? What was the draw? I know you loved it. We've talked a little offline about that, but, but what took you down that path and talk us through that a little bit. Yeah. You know, from my perspective, I, I kind of ended up in, in, in sports medicine and sports performance by accident. You know, back in the day, I always thought I was going to do like infectious diseases or something mm. like that. And, you know, in, in college and, and then later in graduate school, I was working on a Ph.D. in, in molecular genetics before I left for medical school. Um, so I always thought I was going to do some combination of research and medicine. Mm. Um, but, you know, once I, uh, you know, I, I got pretty disillusioned with the research world, at least in terms of microbiology, relatively quickly. Um, and so as I was going through medical school and started working in sports performance, it was a complete accident. You know, I, um, I started getting into triathlon and stuff. It was kind of on my list of things to do. And, and I, I'm a terrible endurance athlete. I'm a terrible athlete in general, but I'm particularly <laughs> bad in terms of endurance. Uh, you know, and people laugh about that, but it, it's completely true. And I asked one of my professors, you know, uh, Bill Sexton is a great guy down in Missouri. I was like, Bill, like I'm, I'm getting killed. Like, what do I do? <laughs> And he's like, let me show you what to read. And he turned me on to some different authors, some of whom came from Exeter. Um, and I started reading and, um, you know, I'm good at math. And I saw these different kinds of models that help you develop performance. And I was like, I can, I can do this. This is pretty easy. So I, I got, I, I wrote some macros in Excel to do the, the calculus and I applied for a patent and did all this kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun. Um, and it worked. I got a lot faster. I wasn't fast, but I was much faster than I used to be. I knocked about 10 minutes off my 5k. Wow. Um, and so friends I had who were former professional athletes were like, Hey, can you help me out with my training? I like, apply these miles to their training and they start winning stuff. And so they're excited. 
Um, and then uh, in about 08, uh, Joanna Zeiger came to me, who was mm. an Olympian. Yeah, yeah. And she was like, Skiba, you know, she's like, I'm a scientist. Her PhD is in genetics. Yep. She's like, I, I see you're doing something different. Can you help me? Right. And, and I'm like, this sounds like a terrible idea. Right. This woman's already an Olympian. What am I going to teach her? Um, yeah, but, just, yeah, just let me jump in ideas. real quick, just so people know. A lot of you know who Joanna is, but she's uh, one of the best Ironman triathletes we ever had, Olympian at the Olympic distance in triathlon. So we're talking about an elite of the elite. So keep going. Sorry. Yeah, best of the best. Um, and we just needed to tweak her training a little bit. And that season at age 38, she went on to win almost everything she entered and set a world record and won the world championships. Um, and my career was kind of made from there. But the problem I had was that the science that had to be done to advance things further had not been done yet. Mm. Um, and I was uniquely prepared to be able to do that. Yeah. So as I talked to Annie and Andy Jones, and Annie Manhattan and Exeter, um, they were like, you know, this is the place where you could do that kind of work. Um, they're unbelievably nice people as well. Yes. Um, I had a tremendous amount of fun. So, you know, I ended up with that group in Exeter working on my PhD while also advising British triathlon for the 2012 games. Cause, uh, you know, I was, de- I was developing a lot of stuff for them, uh, to help them try and punch above their weight for their home games. And they did. Okay. Um, and they, they did all right. <laughs> Golden bronze is not bad. And, you know, but, but, you know, this whole kind of thing snowballed for me. You know, I didn't really expect to end up in my position now. Wow. Wow. That's, that's awesome. That's awesome. Keep it up, man. I'm, I love this. So what are some of the more ridiculous fads, falsehoods, whatever that over the last year or so, let's, let's skip the anti-vaxxers, but what are some of the most ridiculous fads and falsehoods that you've seen get traction that have caused you the biggest eye rolling over the last, you pick your time frame, year, couple of years, something like that. Oh God, it's hard to say. Um, because <laughs> you got a lot of options. So much of it. Yeah. Right. You know. Oh look. You know. Brett Favre thinks we should all wear magnetic bracelets because that's going to like what? Right. You know. It's um. You know. It's it's just it, what I tell people is, is that you need a really good reason. Like, there's a lot of science has been done in the last couple hundred years. If you've never heard of it before, right. chances are it's nonsense. Exactly. Because we've known the big, broad strokes of exercise physiology for almost 100 years. Um, none of this stuff is new. Like we, we find out new stuff, and we develop new models, and it's cool. But the basic facts haven't changed in probably the last 20 or 30 years. Um, and, so, and so that's a and that's thing. And, and the challenge we have in this space is the barrier to entry is relatively low if you want to be in sports science, yep. right? Because a lot of the programs out there were really meant to develop like physical education teachers. They weren't necessarily developed to build sports scientists who are going to ask strict scientific questions and interrogate data um, and, and, and give clear answers to things. Um, so there's a lot of people out there who claim to, uh, to claim work in the sports science spa- uh, space when really they're like, you know, uh, sports five pros. courses. Yeah. I could say, right. They had five classes and they think that they know a- anything. And the easiest way to see that is when you look at, you know, when you listen to any, literally any sports cast, right. Sports broadcast <laughs> that has to do with swimming or running or cycling or something. And how many times have you heard someone say, Oh, the lactic acid is really burning in their legs now. Except <laughs> lactic acid doesn't cause burning, nor does it limit performance. Like that's something we've known for, more than 50 years. Um, But these things become sort of memes and they just continue to roll 
Um, and it's like, just, just stop, you know, thinking about lactate is thinking about the exhaust from an engine, right? You can, you can think about that. Like, okay, that's one way to think about things, but wouldn't you rather look at like the tachometer or the, or the, or, or the speedometer, like, or the oil pressure, like something that actually relates to the function of the machine. So screening process. So the person is listening to this and they're going, oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. So how do they know? Like your credentials are so deep and wide, like, okay, we got that. But for today, later on, they see something on Instagram, Twitter, whatever. And they're like, Ooh, that could help me. What, what would you recommend for their screening process to go from? Yeah. The easiest thing to do, right. Is um, you you write down kind of the keywords they're talking about, you know, let's say it's uh, nitrate. Okay. That's something that's been in the news the last several years. So you go over to PubMed, which is a, a free uh, search engine for basically all the biomedical literature that exists in the world. Um, and you type those things in to so type in nitrate and endurance performance. And you're going to get a hundred references about how nitrate affects endurance performance. And you'll be able to look there and say, okay, wow, lots of people have studied this. And the balance of these paragraphs I am reading, which are summaries, they're called abstracts. Say that, yes, this, this, this helps performance. Yes, this helps performance. You can do the same thing with like, you know, caffeine, for example. You find a gazillion articles that say this helps performance. And so you can be pretty confident. Okay, so maybe this is something I need to think about and research in more detail. But now what you have is a list of people who work on it, right, in the space. Look at some, look for someone like, you know, myself or Andy Jones or whoever and say, okay, well, these people are really well published. Right. They have academic positions. These, these, these people are probably safe sources of information. Right. And then you go hunt out podcasts. You can find podcasts that I've done or Andy's done or, or whomever. Um, and, and so now you know that you're, 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 you're mining an area where there's actually something to be found. If you do that same process and you find two references, both of which came from some company that's marketing something to you. Okay. Maybe this is nonsense. You know, maybe you should then have your, your BS filters on and, and be more suspicious about what you're reading, but you have to do that legwork. You can't allow people like quote unquote influencers, right. To tell you what to think, um, find real experts, find out what they think, right. They got where they are for a reason. They've done the work they, they, they they've done their homework, believe them when they tell you. Well, and folks, keep in mind, he's not asking you to spend a year taking a course to figure this out. You're popping over to PubMed, you're putting in your keywords, you within a minute have a list of articles, you can see Andy Beetroot on Twitter and know that this nitrate thing is a real thing. You can see that caffeine does work when used appropriately. It can also be a disaster if used inappropriately, but you, you get that. So again, Listen to what he's saying. He's not asking you to do some big project or write a paper. He's saying spend five minutes instead of trusting the knucklehead that thinks he or she knows everything and probably knows nothing. Um, all right. So you just got promoted. Elon Musk just called this morning, and he said to ask you if you would become the chief pseudoscience-busting judiciary for Twitter. And I tweak, I tweak that. It's the t- chief PBJ for those of you who are following along at home. Um, did, did you like that one? So chief pseudoscience busting judiciary, what steps would you initiate for Twitter to help us? There's no way to clean it up completely, but what would you put in place if that was your new role 
and take your time. I, I, this is an important thing going no, forward. Number one, I wouldn't work. For, I wouldn't work for Twitter, Elon Musk. <laughs> All right. Well, but 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 be that okay. But let's let, let's pretend that you know um, you wanted to be a PBJ. Uh, so yeah, you're like here's some, my chance on, on some online platform. Here's exactly. my chance. I, I, I would simply say this: Look at the person's credentials. Do they have a university post? You know, where do they work out of? Um, and just start there. You know, are there knuckleheads who work at universities? Yes. In general, right? People who are coming from an academic background like that are not complete knuckleheads. Most of them at least mean well. And uh, most of them are not trafficking in complete pseudoscience and nonsense. Be skeptical when you read things from people that are coming from a purely commercial background. Their job is to sell you stuff, right? right. Like from, from my perspective, like I'm a physician. I could walk away from sports performance tomorrow and it would make no difference to my life financially. Um, you know, at least not in any meaningful way. Um, and so when I'm telling you that something works or doesn't work, I have no reason to lie to you. Um, and so that's what you need to think about as you look at people and say, how am I going to make this first cut between nonsense and sense? What does the person have to gain by lying to you? You know, if this is a person with university post who publishes a lot of papers, et cetera, they've got a lot to lose by lying to you. Right. Their whole life could be over tomorrow. Um, those people are going to tend to be a little bit more trustworthy, you know. But also, um, you know, once you kind of make that uh, once you kind of make that first cut, you're, you're in a pretty safe place. But then when someone tells you something, understand that science works by a preponderance of evidence. Um, so when you go back to PubMed and you search for whatever this or this person on Twitter is, is telling you about and you find 10 or 15 references on something and they all kind of point in a certain direction, you can be pretty confident in that. If you go back and read about something and there's 20 articles and 10 or four and 10 are against and the margins are very small, the chances are what you are looking at is noise. Um, that it's just, it's, it's, it's noise and you're not finding any real signal there. So you could probably safely ignore that kind of stuff. You know, like, you know, penicillin works because when you drop it in the Petri diff with susceptible, with susceptible bacteria, everything's dead, all of it. Right. And so it's like, okay, that's a clear experiment that this thing works. You know, when I run an experiment and I, and I, I test a supplement on someone and three of the people look 2% faster and, you know, 15 people don't and someone else runs a study and they say, oh, well, look, 10 people got 1% faster. Like at some point you got to say, this is probably not meaningful. Um, and, and why are we chasing this? Um, and it's particularly important for athletes because where this usually comes to bear is in areas like supplements, right? Supplements are dangerous uh, and they're dangerous because there's no law that says that what they claim is in the supplement is actually in there. Right. Nor is there any guarantee that other things that are banned are not in there. Um, an example I often give people is when I was a sports medicine fellow back in the mid, you know, aughts, um, you know, it's a million years ago now. Right. Um, but you know, I, I had kids come in, um, you know, who had all the stigmata of steroid abuse, right. They had acne all over their back. They had giant muscles. They shouldn't have had at 16 years old, all kinds of stuff. And they're like, they're like, you know, they, and they came to me sent by their primary cause they had some weird liver function tests which is a, which is again, a hallmark of oral steroid use. And these kids are like, doc, I'm not, I'm not taking steroids. I don't even know where to get steroids. And I'm like, what do you take? Bring everything. And they've got muscle builder, 19,000 creatine supplement and yada, 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 rip fuel this or whatever they were. I don't even know if these are real names of supplements. I'm making them up off the top of my head. Um, 
but, but, but yeah, so people come in with the stuff and we test it and it's got steroids in it, right? Like the, the stuff was made in a factory in China or, or Mexico or, or someplace else. Um, and it's contaminated and you got to, now, first of all, that contamination is almost certainly not accidental. I was just going to say that might be purposeful. Yeah. Right. Like I didn't just sell you a muscle building supplement that just magically found steroids and found, you know, right. steroids magically found their way into that. Right. Someone purposefully did that. Like, right. don't lie to me. Um, and so, and so that's, that's the thing, you know, supplements are not a food group. Um, and so like when you're researching that kind of stuff, be, ex- be extra careful. You know, I love it. What are you buying protein power for powder for? Get up, make your eggs in the morning. And the protein is way higher quality um, and it tastes better. (laughs) So what about agree with everything you said? That's exactly why I want to have you on. We've got to shine a light on this stuff. Now, with that said, what about the time constraint? So a physician, our son's in med school right now. He's seeing this live and in person. You know, in your setting, or at least your peers, you've taken a slightly different avenue. You might have eight minutes per patient. So if someone comes in, you don't have time to go do a literature review. You don't have, you, you've you got to get your notes done. You already work a 12-hour a day. How does, how does the individual who trusts their doctor, doesn't think they're lying to them, but thinks they just might be missing something. How does that person approach their physician with it or approach their life with some of these other components that might be available that the physician, no fault of theirs, it just doesn't fit into the model right now? Well, the thing is you have to have, you have to be able to have an open and honest conversation with your physician. And you have to be able to say, hey, is this something you know anything about, Dr. Skiba? You know? Because it might not be. And I tell that to patients all the time. You're willing you know, to admit that. But absolutely. how many physicians, I, I, that's what I'm saying. You, you do. You have if that confidence. But what, if, a lot of physicians, if, no. Listen, this is buyer beware. If you have a physician that can't admit they don't know something, you're with the wrong doctor. Um, you know, I often tell people one of the best doctors I know is the guy who graduated last in my medical school class. Hmm. Um, and the reason for that is and this guy is an old friend of mine and the reason for this is that he knows what he doesn't know mm. he knows when to call a consult mm. and he has no ego about it yeah. you know and, and do people complain like oh god i got another call from so-and-so on a consult sure you know but but that's not the point the, the point is is that he's got um the, enough insight into himself to know what he does and doesn't know um if your physician can't do that you're in the wrong place you need to find a new doctor yeah. anyone who thinks who's going to tell you they're the first or last word on anything um, you, you need to scrutinize that because there's very few quote unquote world experts in anything. Um, and, and, and if they are, they're in everything. Yeah, exactly. I was gonna say, if they are, they're in one thing period. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. Exactly. All right. Let's we're, we're talking healthcare. Let's continue that path. Healthcare feels, and I come from healthcare, physical therapist. Again, our, our kids are all in healthcare practically. Um, it seems broken beyond repair in many ways. What yes. realistic changes do you see, and, and realistic maybe is in quotes, maybe it's hopeful, do you see over the next decade that you think maybe possibly could potentially, I'm using a lot of disclaimers here, shift the trajectory in a, a little better direction? I'm going to be honest with you, Brad. I don't think it's possible. Mm. I think we've got two choices here. Either we're going to finally bankrupt the system and end up with something that's more equitable and just. 
uh, or we're going to continue down a very, very dangerous path. Um, right now, medicine is being dictated from boardrooms, um, from places where people are most interested in profit centers uh, and service lines. And, um, and that's just not a way to run anything, right? If you want to come from the perspective, and I come from this perspective, that healthcare is a human right, that every person has a responsibility to try and increase, um, to try and increase the happiness in the world and reduce the suffering in the world. You cannot operate medicine from a financial perspective, right? Either it's a human right or it's not. And I believe that it is. People can feel free to argue with me about that. But if you look at countries who operate socialist uh, medical systems and understand what we say about when we talk about socialized, socialized medicine, right? Important things in American society are socialized. We all pay taxes that are socialized to pay for the fire department and the army, right? And, uh, and the police department, right? Um, we pay for things as a community that are important to the survival of the group, right? Um, healthcare is no different. The only reason it's different is because there are a lot of interests in this country that are working to make a lot of money in this space. Um, and it is in their interest to make you think that socialized medicine is somehow dangerous or subpar or whatever. I lived in England in the, in the late aughts and the NHS at that time worked amazing. Um, I went to the doctor for a lot of different things. I never waited very long for anything. Um, I never sat around waiting for very long. I never had to worry about an insurance card or what was going to be paid for. I went to the doctor. They looked me up by my phone number. Yes, Dr. Skiba, have a seat over there. Um, and everything worked very well. The NHS didn't have a big problem until a different government came in and cut several billion pounds from the budget. And all of a sudden, oh, look, it doesn't work anymore. I guess we should just try to privatize everything. In other words, they're trying to make America, make Britain charge down the path America has already shown does not work. Um, greed is a universal Amer human trait. Um, those of us who work in healing and helping professions have a responsibility to fight, to fight against that, to struggle against that in big and small ways. Let's say on this a little bit, because um, I think it's interesting for us to all be thinking through, regardless of where you land on the, the spectrum. Um, so is there a minimum baseline? I'm, I'm only vaguely familiar with the UK system from the brief time I was over there. Uh, is there a minimum baseline? Because we all, it's the old story. We all want the best surgeon, but we don't want to do our part. And I know there's not a right answer for all this, but just as you're thinking this through, as you're talking this through, can you talk us through how that would be approached? Because we can't all have the best and not bankrupt the entire country. And then are there personal steps involved? We live in, I live in the world of health and wellness. Our listeners, many of them live in that world. I think it's a, it's a tough landmine filled field to walk through because the person with plenty of money and time and flexibility has much more opportunity to have a workout, have exercise equipment, et cetera. And so the expectations cannot be the same for that person as it can be for the single mom who's trying to just 
get her kids through school and, you know, barely hanging on. She's not getting to the gym. Like, let's stop kidding ourselves. That's not fair expectation. But where do you see that balance between the community responsibility and the individual responsibility? And is there a way to, is there a way to structure that just in generically walk us through some of your thoughts? This is the challenge. This is the challenge we have is that in America, we, um, we excuse social and societal inequality by pretending it's personal. It's about personal choice, right? The easiest way to look at this is uh, with something like masking during the pandemic. Okay. Right. In the early days, if you looked at say, like they, they published recently a very good study where they looked at Boston. When they removed mask mandates in schools, cases went up substantially. You know, that data cannot, you cannot argue with that data. It's just the way it is. Um, if, uh, you know, but rather than saying we have a social contract with each other to try to keep each other safe. What we have done is, is say is that your and my personal preference is what is paramount. Our, our personal desire is what should be fed. And that is not a way to run a country. Imagine if during World War II, everyone had said, you know, I don't need to ration metal or rubber. It's my choice to put new tires on my car. It's my choice to do this or that. And what would that have done to the war effort? And what world would we live in now had the outcome been different? Right? Like we have lost the thread of social responsibility to each other. Mm. Um, and, and that's where this has to begin. That's where this conversation has to begin because there's no meaningful way you can expect a mother, a single mother living in a food desert to try and feed her kids as healthy as possible when she's got to stop at a, at, you know, right. uh, exactly. a drugstore that also sells snack food exactly. to find some food for them after her 12 hour shift working wherever she works. Right. It's not reasonable. Right. 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 These are problems that need to be tackled at a, at a, at a social level. And I'm pausing because, man, I'd love to. Do you have any thoughts about how we start that? Pro- besides, and, and you've said, said how to start it. You said, let's talk about it. Let's stop hiding it. Let's stop covering it up. So that's truly step one. Do you have a step one B for us or a step two that we could start talking about? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, think, I think that's the real challenge um, because... You know, we live in a highly fractured country mm. and in a highly fractured world, no doubt. right? Where, where we are purposefully divided. I mean, Fox News or MSNBC, it's not about ideology. It's about money, right? right? We, we, we divide you and then we monetize you, right? right? We advertise to you, right? We, we try to sell you things. Right. Um, and so as, as long as we live in a world where we can't even agree on reality and communicate with each other. I, I frankly, I hate to be a pessimist. I don't know that there's any hope like at, at some point. Um, and, and this may need to come in some legislative way where we say that, you know, there needs to be some kind of reality, right? There needs to be. Um, and the easy way to do that is to make people liable, really liable when they spread misinformation. Mm. Doctors who go on Twitter and lie about vaccines need to have their licenses taken away, right? You are not allowed your privileged position as a defender of health 
and, 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 and people in general, if you're going to lie, you lose your license. There need to be real consequences for that. Right now, anybody can say anything and they can call it freedom of speech. Mm. But freedom of speech is not freedom from consequence. Right. And to me, maybe that's where this begins, is that we start, okay, you want personal responsibility? Great. You're going to be accountable for what comes out of your mouth. And you're going to lie to me about vaccines. You're going to lie to me about, you know, any other healthcare thing. You're going to lie to me about a supplement. Great. You're liable for the results of that. Um, and, and, and I think maybe that's where it starts. So folks, you heard it here first. Senator Skiba will be running for office in two years. So keep your eyes out for those, uh, those billboards. I love it. Thank you for exploring this with us. I, I kind of put you on the spot there. So thanks for kind of running down that path. All right. We, we talked a touch about this, but I want to go back to it and choose in terms of choosing doctor or surgeon. Um, not everyone necessarily has the option to, to pick their doc, but most people here in the States can shift to somebody else. If you were selecting a family practice doc and then a surgeon, let's look at this two different ways, general or ortho, whatever people have in mind and you didn't have the connections you have now, how would you go about making that selection? So basically, how does the average person, what do they look for besides what you talked about earlier, of that willingness to say, I don't know, but what else would you look for in your family practice doc and your, again, general or orthosurgeon? You know, you start by, you start by um, asking your friends questions. Who is your doctor? Do they listen to you? Do they talk to you? Do they mm. give you the time of day when mm. you call them? Do they call you back? Uh, and, and, and I think that's where it starts is with a relationship. You know, years ago, they did a great study where they said, uh, would you rather have the smartest doctor or the doctor that communicate with you the best? And by far, the better communicator wins that fight. Yeah. Um, and, 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 and for me, and I'm proud of this, when people come back and they look at my reviews, because uh, that's all online nowadays, right. you always see people saying, he listened to me. He took the time with me, et cetera. That's what you're looking for. Ask your friends who that person is. Um, once you get that person, the rest of it's easy because that guy's your quarterback, right? So now he's able to say to you, yeah, right. Like, this is your problem. The guy in the community who does these hip procedures, it's so-and-so, you know, go, go see them. You're likely to have a good experience. Um, you know, and sometimes, you know, from my perspective, like I have a talk, you know, um, I'm, I'm fortunate in that I work with a lot of really good, really personable doctors. And part of how I've developed my corner of the healthcare system, I, I have this, this as director of sports medicine, I have this ability as I've been able to gather these people around me, um, into that kind of group of people who, um, you know, but, but if I know someone needs something really specialist, um, you know, like I, I can think of one surgeon in particular I know who's an unbelievably talented surgeon. You would not want to have to sit with him at a bar for more than five minutes. <laughs> He's just obnoxious. Um, but he can cut straight and he does a really good job. And so when someone comes in with this one particular weird thing, I'll say, listen to me. I'm sending you to Dr. So-and-so. This guy's not going to Don't be ask him friend. out to dinner. Yeah, exactly. Don't ask him out to dinner, but he's going to fix your problem. And he's going to do a really good job of it, you know? Um, and so I think when you can have that level of honesty with, with your patients and you can find a doctor who can be that level of honesty with you, the rest of it's going to be pretty easy. Yeah. Um, you know, you just kind of, kind of, you got to kind of start with that quarterback. That's why primary care is so important. Awesome. Uh, you stated, and this is in quotes, lateral thinking is everything. So folks, basically he's saying the value of drawing on insights across a very wide range of inputs that might be sports, 
uh, psychology, philosophy, medical science, marketing, and everything in between. Why did you say that? Why, why is that important? And frankly, why don't more of us tap into that opportunity? Because I think you're dead on. You know, people tend to have, we talk about tunnel vision, right? The only, when the only tool you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail, yep. right? You, you, you ask a bunch of blind people to feel, a, to feel an elephant and they'll all tell you it looks different, yep. right? Because someone grabbed the leg, someone grabbed the trunk. Um, you know, for me, and this goes right back to my college education. I went to Siena College, a little place in upstate New York, little Franciscan school, which was a liberal arts education. I was a biology major. I was able to focus on molecular sciences. That's what I was most interested in. But I had to take philosophy and physics and organic chemistry and history. And, um, and the reason why that's so important is that there is very little that's new under the sun. Um, smart people have thought about a lot of stuff before. And all you need to know is how to avail yourself of that information. Mm. Um, you know, for example, um, a lot of my early work was using something called impulse response models. Um, they're not that common in healthcare. They are extremely common in electronics and physics. And I'm a musician. Um, so I immediately saw the, the, the parity between what I was trying to do in sports and how digital reverb works. Mm. Um, and mm. I was able to, to, to use the mathematics of the one to address the other. Um, and that's just one small example. There's lots of examples like this. Um, but this is why it's important to have an open mind and cast a really wide net in your education, because you will grab something from something you never thought from a field that may not, you not, didn't realize was important in the moment. You know, people in, in physiology often look at me like I'm some kind of mathematical savant. But I just know basic calculus, right? I struggled mightily with differential equations. Like I didn't get very far in that part of my education. Um, but I knew what was important. And, and, I, and I remember enough that I can go back and say, oh, I know that tool. Mm. And if I don't, my collaborator, Dave Clark, who's a, a talented engineer, works up at Simon Fraser University now. I can call him and say, Dave, I don't get how this works, man. Or Mike Pukovic, Mike, I don't get how this works. You explain this to me like an idiot. Um, and so I know where to grab those things, but you have to know that those fields exist. Um, and one of my problems in Britain with the British education system was that people specialize far too early. When I was teaching a basic mathematical modeling class, and these are college students there because they were probably second year, some of them. Um, and I do an equation on the board. Some of them had, it had been so long since they took math as high school students mm. that they didn't even know what some of the symbols in the equation meant. Right. Someone raised their hand and asked, they look at me like I was talking Greek. And so I finally pointed out that, do you know what that is? And someone said, what's that? E? I don't know what that means. I'm like, that's Euler's number. Just put 2.7. Anytime you see that. Okay. Why is that number above that number? That's an exponent. Do you know what that means? Do we multiply that? No, no, you don't multiply that. Wow. So we had to like, so, but, but because I took that time, I was able to step back and we did two classes on just classes, remedial algebra. And then we were able to move forward. Right. Um, but this is the point is that all that stuff in high school, when you're like, when am I ever going to use this? Um, all those extra classes in college, well, I don't need to know this. I'm going to be a doctor. I'm not going to be a historian. I'm not going to be a philosopher. Um, you don't know when you're going to need to reach for those tools, you know, ha ha have that open mind about it, right? You're not here to be a robot. Whereas I tell people, you don't want to be a mechanic who only knows how to change oil, right? You need to be able to do a lot of stuff, right? You want to be an engineer, Right. You want to know how the whole thing works. And even if I don't know how to, you know, fix the brake pads. Right. I know where to go find the book that tells me about fixing brake pads. 
And I hope folks are hearing that. I, what you're saying is so, and I missed it. I was a biology major as well in, in undergrad. I did not absorb it like you did. I was getting to physical therapy school. That was the reason right. for the biology degree. That was, right. I, I missed out so much because instead of going, you know, seeking it out and absorbing it and, and having that then benefit me 10, 15, 20 years later, I was just there for the grade so that I could get into physical therapy school. And that's wrong. Like that's idiotic. And yet I don't think I was in the minority by any extreme. No, no, you're not. We're all trained to believe that the most important thing, I, and I come from an immigrant family, right? The most important thing is becoming a professional, getting a job, like providing for your family. That's how you are wired. Right. Um, but I was fortunate in that um, I came from a family where the actual process of education was important. My father's a professor at NYU. My grandmother was, uh, you know, she, she had her master's in history in the 1950s. I mean, when it was very rare for a woman to do something like that, you know, they understood the value, right? You're educated. I can still remember my, 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 my grandparents telling me, saying to me when I was kindergarten or first grade, where are you going to go to college? Mm, you know, just expect um, you're right. You're, Right. Your education is everything. Yeah. Um, so I went to school with a love of learning yeah. and we need to find a way to foster that in children, not to, not to beat them up for their curiosity because not everyone's meant for everything. Like I love science. That's great. But other people didn't. Right. So how about we foster their curiosity in their fields? Right. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, I, I, I don't have any children, you know, but the way I look at it is that, you know, I study medicine, so they might be able to study music or, or something else, you know, because all these areas of human endeavor, of human understanding are important and they all feed each other. Yeah. Um, and the minute you forget about that, you're poorer for it. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Love that. We had David Epstein on a couple of years ago, actually. I don't know if you've read his. David's a great. He, oh, yeah. He's a great range. dude. Yeah. I, I have a lot of time for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Good Absolutely. Stuff. He's, he totally nails it. All right. So when it comes to athletic performance, what are some of the key areas that you see many non-pros? So to take the Joannas off the table here for a minute, this is the weekend warriors. This is the folks that call you and say, Hey, I want to do a marathon or, or triathlon or something. What are the, some of the key areas to see many non-pros missing that frankly could have a huge impact on their outcomes? The number one, one, the one, the number one thing is consistency, right? All of us, have really busy lives. Um, and it is so easy to say, I'm going to skip this workout today, or I'm going to do something different today or, or whatever. Um, you need to do the work if you're going to see the eventual performance. Um, you need to do the work if you just don't want to get hurt. Um, mm -hmm. you gotta, you gotta make it happen. It needs to be a non-negotiable part of your schedule. Okay. Um, and, and so th that's what I try, um, to tell people is that, don't set the goal based on the thing you, 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 you want to do, right? Set the goal that is reasonable based upon what you have available to you. If I've only got a half hour a day to exercise, I should not be trying to train for an Ironman. It's just going to end in tragedy, right? right? How, let's, 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 let's wipe the board and say, yeah, I can probably train for a sprint triathlon, give it an hour to 45 minutes a day. Good. Now, now I can help you get towards that goal. Um, but just be honest with yourself. Because the challenge when you, we're all goal-oriented people, right? People who do marathons, people who do triathlons, they're type A personalities in general. They are focused on their goal. And what happens to you when you don't reach a goal? You feel like a failure, right? And you end up in this in, in sort of this spiral of despair right. of beating yourself up, all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and I say that from experience, like as I moved farther along in my career, it got harder and harder to train. Um, right now, a win for me is, did I get to train four days this week? Did I spend 30 minutes, four days this week exercising? And if I did that, I won. Um, and, and, and so that's what I, I ask people to do is like, let's just set a reasonable goal and let's go for it and make that non-negotiable in our lives. Huge uh, expectations are, are so critical. Any others that you think, you know what, I think a lot of people are missing this or, you know, Alan Cousins, we just had uh, Marco Altini on talking about his HRV for training app, looking at the lower level training, you know, zone one, zone two type stuff. Are there things around that that you think people are missing that are basics? Here's the thing. And Marco's a nice dude. Um, I always read his posts with a lot of interest. Um, most people don't need all of the toys. Um, so that's a good one. Great majority. The great majority don't. I love the toys, right? It's how I make my living. <laughs> it's how I develop algorithms. It's how I develop models. And I'm with it's you. How I, it's how I, it's how I figured it out early on. I mean, right. how did, was I able to coach Joanna? How was I able to coach the Kenyans right. uh, and the Ethiopians without these tools beaming their data every day? Right. right. That's what made it happen. The average person doesn't need to know their heart rate variability. It's, they just don't. They don't need to know their power output. They don't. What they need to do is say, did I get out and exercise today? Mm. Did I exercise hard enough that I noticed my heart was beating hard? Yeah. Did I exercise hard enough that I felt like I was breathing heavy? Yeah. These are the things, you know, and, and it's funny, you know, I learned that lesson pretty early on in my career because very early on, like I had the, the, the strange fortune to figure out something really cool and then to have an elite athlete cash in on it in a matter of a year and a half, right? No one gets that opportunity. So I was like very full of myself. I'm like, wow, oh, look at this, right? <laughs> Schema figured all this out in no time, you know, mm. um, right? I got it worked out. Um, and then uh, Sally Edwards, yeah. um, who you may remember yeah, yeah, from a million yeah. years heart ago. Rate. Yeah, she was the first one. Her heart rate books, yeah. right? She's such, she's such a neat person. Um, I, I got a lot of time for Sally. Um, she's worth talking to sometime if you get the time. Um, but she, uh, she invited me to a conference. She's like, hey, I'm doing my conference for my heart coaches, about a hundred of them will come. Uh, I want you to come and talk to them. And I'm, I'm kind of flattered. I'm like, oh, okay, sure, Sally, I've seen your books in the bookstore. This is, this is cool. And she says to me, uh, she said, Carl Foster is going to be there. Now, Carl Foster, for people who don't know who that is, is a former president of the American College of Sports Medicine. He's got probably thousands of publications. Um, and at this time, I don't know that he's literally the nicest guy alive, right? So she's like, I'm like, excuse me, like, I'm going to open for Carl Foster. Are you out of your mind? You know, but like, I'm not going to turn down this, this opportunity. Right. And so we go, we pick up Carl at the airport and, we're, and he's, he's such a nice guy. Right. I'm like, I'm immediately put at ease with him. Um, and we're, we're talking about one of the, 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 one of my talks, which was about using this math to, 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 to do performance. He's like, Phil, he says, that's the best I've heard anyone ever tell that. You know, the easiest to understand. And I've heard that him say the same thing to other people, too. To my my uh, former PhD advisor, Annie Van Hadelow, you know, he said, Annie, like, I never got that until you understood it. So he's really magnanimous with this stuff. But what came out of his mouth next to what was important, he was like, don't allow yourself to miss the human aspect. Mm. You know, he's like, he's like, when I got a patient on an ergometer, we're trying to do a stress test. Right. I'm looking them in the eyes to see. Do they look like they're in trouble, mm. right? I'm, I'm feeling their hand. I'm feeling their pulse. Are they clammy? You know, is it a pulse regular or are they getting, or is something funny going on here? He's like, you're going to miss so much 
if you don't take and address and respect the human element of all this. Mm. Um, now, I started from the wrong end, right? I started from the top end and had to work down towards that. Um, you know, and it truly, in my estimation now, my goal in using all these tools is so that you learn your body well enough that you don't need the tools anymore. Mm that you can just sense and tell when things are going on and how you ought to behave. Like to me, um, all the tools, all the science, all the math, it's fun at the top end, but for the average person, for me, the goal is understanding myself better because now I know after 15 years of measuring myself, I can go out and train without any equipment at all. I know exactly what my power output is or close to it or the pace that I'm running. Um, I know if I'm approaching my critical speed or my critical power, like I know all those physical cues now. Um, and that's the goal. It's, it's an inner knowledge, right? It's not just about, you know, some stupid website marking, you know, marking new PRs or stuff. That's not what it's about. It can't be about that because as we get older, we're all going to get worse. And it's true. No! It's the nature of physiology, right? <laughs> Right. Like we all lose a certain little bit every year. We can maintain it for a long time, but no matter what, eventually we start this inevitable decline and we need to be able to manage that. Right. And if all we do is focus on numbers, we're going to hate ourselves. So the folks listening to this, a huge percent, as you said, of the type A, they want to have the power meters and the heart rate and blah, 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 blah. So would one of your pieces of advice for them, because they already bought the stuff, would be to get out there if they're training six days a week, get out there for a couple of days. Don't wear it. Just, you know, maybe wear you need it. a watch to know how long you were out there, but no, no, wear it. But what you need to do is use it as kind of like a flight data recorder, right? Okay. It's the black box. Okay. That you're going to later yeah. be able to look at. Okay. Like when, like when, uh, don't be doing the this the whole time. Right. Exactly. Right. Like a lot of times she would cover, cover something with tape. Mm. So she wouldn't be looking at mm. it. And then later we, we would be able to analyze it. Mm. Um, but yeah, because, and then, cause you can look at it after the fact and say, this is what I felt. Is that objectively what was going on? Mm. And with time, you're going to see that those two things get closer and closer. You know, Love that. Um, I, I'm, at the, I'm at the point on, on, on a bike. I can tell you within 10 Watts where I am at any given time, mm. um, which is great. Because if I'm traveling someplace and I didn't travel with a bike um, and I grab, I, you know, I, I grab a bike from the, from the hotel, uh, from the ho hotel lend, uh, lender lending room. Um, I know what I'm doing. Right. I got a pretty good idea, right. you know, All right. two more. Um, let's shift away from athletes for a second and talk about executives or folks that are trying to improve their, their work performance. Are there any evidence-based concepts from the work that you've done with athletes that we could apply to anyone else outside of the athletic realm. Yeah. Um, it, it's pretty clear that you can't go hard all the time. Your performance suffers. Um, you need easy days and you need hard days. Um, and you have to understand that this goes for everybody, physicians, executives, et cetera. You can't work at the top, very, very top of your game every single day. It's not possible. Um, you inevitably end up on a decline in terms of your performance. Um, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's long. Sometimes it's short. And you have to allow yourself that, that grace, mm -hmm. you know, um, to be able to say that, you know what, I'm, I really am tired today and I'm not going to work till seven o'clock. I'm going to leave at five like I'm supposed to. Um, you know what? I'm not going to do these charts today. I'm going to put those charts off. I'm going to do them tomorrow. Um, I need to go home and have dinner with my family. Um, and, you know, there's this, you know, every time you get on an airplane, what do they tell you? 
oxygen you know, mask oxygen, on first. The oxygen mask falls. Put your put yours on first, yeah. right? That, that, that's great advice for any part of life. Yeah. Yeah, good. All right, we cannot let you get away without talking about the Breaking 2 documentary, your involvement with that. Folks, if you've not seen this, you've got to see it. It is fascinating. A few questions on this, but one kind of random one off the top. It seemed to me as I was watching it that Kipchoge was almost an afterthought. It's like, this guy's already doing all the right things. He's already a world champion. We don't think we can really improve him that much, but we got to include him because of who he is. But these other two Hmm. or three runners, they're the ones we can really, you know, move the dial on with different fueling and pacing and whatever it might be. Was that just my perception or was that kind of the way it was? I only take you inside the room as we're making decisions on the group. At first, we weren't even sure we could afford Kipchoge. <laughs> right? well, good thing and, and you did. End, and it, right? In, in the end, Nike basically gave us a blank check, right? Uh-huh. But in the beginning, when the project was first coming together, um, it was like, can we afford this guy? Like, should we looking for people who are a little bit lower on the totem pole? But we might, you know. Um, so, so yeah. Um, but, but, but your, your perception is correct. Like it wasn't clear immediately because Elliot did, already did so many things correctly. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and very well, uh, how are we going to be able, uh, how are we going to be able to improve him? You know, and one of the funniest parts of that experience was that, you know, we weren't looking to teach hardly anything. We were looking to learn. Mm. Um, and so as I'm talking to Elliot for the first time, you know, and I tell the story a lot. He says, well, he's like, you're going to come to Africa. We're going to, you know, uh, we're going to, uh, we're going to train together. And I kind of give him a look, <laughs> you know, and he starts laughing. He says, well, doctor, maybe you will ride in the truck and I will train, you know, <laughs> you know, um, but, but yeah, you know, like for us, and again, you know, if you approach every situation with how can I learn from this versus what can I bring to this, you're going to find yourself in a much better position, you know, because the coaches that we worked with immediately understood that we already respected them as professionals. Mm. We already knew that they knew what they were doing, Mm. that we were looking to see, you know, what we could learn from them. And then we were going to see, you know, what, things can we bring from a different perspective that you maybe haven't thought about and that we became such a fruitful relationship you know in the movie you hear um uh, Lisa, you know say uh you know birds fly right scientists cannot fly but scientists can build an airplane mm. you know um and 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 it's really the that's really the relationship that it was between all of us. Like mm. they were the birds, mm. you know, we were the guys that were going to try and, you know, give them, you know, better goggles so they could see in the rain or, or whatever, you know, however you want to make that metaphor work. Um, and, and that uh, led to an incredibly fruitful relationship, right? Cause I see the exact opposite relationship when I'm dealing with a lot of Western coaches. Interesting. Who are always uh, there's a, there's a level of ego. Huh. You know, um, there's a level of um, there's a level of who's is bigger. Huh. You know, um, they're, tr- they're, they're it's it's a competitive relationship, right. um, and it's also a relationship built on fear, 
right? Um, if I admit I can learn something, it looks like maybe I'm not the best person for this job and I'm going to get fired. Right. right? Um, you know, and, and, I, and I found that relationship a lot in elite sport, you know, cause I've done a lot of consulting work for different organizations and I find that people are fearful and I'm like, look, I am not here to take your job, right? You're the carpenter. I'm just looking to give you a better hammer. Right. You know, you're going to keep building the houses. I don't want no part of that, right. you know? Right. Um, and, and I think that's it. That's just everyone, when you come into these relationships, needs to come in with an open mind and an open heart, right? Like most people um, are looking to collaborate, mm. you know? And if they're not, when your gut tells you something's not right, obey that feeling, mm. you know, because those people typically set out, stick out like sore thumbs in high performance situations, um, you know? And that's not always easy to, to believe. It's easy to talk yourself out of that. So I heard two different things there and I'm writing down most people are looking to collaborate, but you also noted something I've seen a lot that no, some people aren't like they're looking right. to get their billboard put up. What? Correct. I think we know it. And that's was, part of the society we live in now with influencers yeah. and Instagram, whatever. Right. And you got, you got to be able to spot that and, and remove it from your, from your situation. Um, you know, there's a, um, you know, my people often look at my department of sports medicine and they say, why is it that you guys get along so well? Why is it that you guys are always one all for one, one for all? And I said, because I, we selected colleagues who were interested in that from the beginning. I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how good you are. Um, if, if, if I don't see that you're willing to put someone else's needs above your own, you're not for us. Mm. Um, I don't care what your pedigree looks like. Um, and a lot of times as we're selecting, for example, we just finished the selection process for a new, uh, for a new fellow, a new trainee sports doctor who's going to come in and work for us. Um, we built our list based not upon who had the best sports sports, based not upon who wrote the best personal statement. It was during the interview process who made it clear that they were a team player. Mm. You know, and if you can, if you can convince me of that, you're going to get your chance with me, Yeah. you know? Um, and, and I think that's it. It's just respect those people who, you know, don't, don't make it a, a meritocratic process, right? If you graduated from medical, like let's just use medicine as an example. If you graduated from medical school, you're smart enough to be a sports doctor. It's just not that hard. Okay. Like I could teach almost anybody to be a sports doctor in a year or two. I can't teach you how to have empathy. Yeah. I can't, I can't teach you how to be a good teammate to listen. Um, right. I can't teach you how to listen. Yeah. Like you got to come with that. Right. If you don't have those skills, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but that transfers, I think to any organization, you know, if you're running a big corporation, like don't just think about, Oh, they did their MBA at Wharton or, Oh, they, you know, look, look, look at this person's pedigree. Is this guy a team player? Yeah. They're smart enough. Business isn't that hard. I'm sorry. Yeah. Right who's going to work with us yeah. and not on, and not for their own betterment. Yeah. Yeah. We had Tom Peters on who you're preaching his message. I don't know if you're a, a Tom Peters fan, but you're preaching his message mm. in the business realm and fascinating stuff. Last thing. And thank you so much again for your time, but I want to stay with this breaking to just another moment. Cause it's such a, a cool experience you got to be involved with. Were there any other surprises or, or what were some of the surprises in that journey that you came out of it? You shared some of them. Any others that you're 
just, oh, Brad, there was this one time or there was this thing that we discovered we never expected, et cetera? I mean, uh, to take it kind of a, completely away from a sports performance, um, for me, and I told Elliot this, like, I never expected to go to Africa, right? Like, I'm a doctor. My my work in early on in my career in, in molecular genetics was involving parasitology, Chagas disease, um, malaria, trypanosome diseases. I don't want to catch any of these things, right? <laughs> I am not, Skiba is not going to Africa. Are you crazy? Um, and, and the lady from Nike said, Skiba, read your contract a little more closely. You're going to Africa. <laughs> Get your shots, you know? Um, but, um, you know, to, to go there. Now, I come from a majority white uh, country, right? At least for the moment, you know, it won't be that way forever. But but for the, but, but but at this point, it more or less is. And at least most of the levers of power are controlled by white people. Um, I walked into a world was where I was one of very few white people. Um, and I saw um, the kindness and generosity and, and respect I was offered. Um, as, as a foreigner, as a person who didn't belong. Um, and it's not at all, uh, it, it is far, far superior to the way we treat the other mm. in this country, in, mm. in, in America. Mm. Um, the best part of my entire experience was uh, when I went up to Elliot's training camp, uh, next door to it is a, um, is a, a children's school like a boarding school in, in Kenya, a lot of parents will send their kids away from their village to a boarding school. So they get better educated and can kind of move up in the world. Um, and so I get out of my safari truck and all these little kids run to the fence, probably between the ages of six and uh, 12, like that. Um, Mazanga, Mazanga, that means the kind of like, you know, white guy, you know, <laughs> you know, come greet us, you know, and I walk over and the very first thing that happened is that they wanted to feel the hair on my arms. Mm. <laughs> and then someone asked me to take off my, my hat so they could feel the hair on my head. And then they're feeling their own hair, you know? Um, and they wanted to know where I came from and what was Chicago like? And did I ever meet Obama? Obama's from Chicago and his family comes from near here. Yeah. And, um, you know, uh, even later on in Ethiopia, where I was dealing with kids who, who didn't speak English at all, you know? Um, but we're kind of using sign languages. I mean, there's a picture on the internet somewhere of me explaining, like demonstrating to one of these kids how an anemometer works, like so to get wind speed and direction, you know, and I'm kind of crouched there with I'm showing them how it works. Um, but what, what I learned there is that human connection, right, is paramount. And um, we can learn a lot from these places in the world that we consider, you know, somehow second world Beyond. or third world yeah. behind us right. when in fact they are anything but yeah. because in terms of, in terms of the way to treat a human being, um, not the bad things don't happen in Africa. They obviously sure, do. Sure. Um, but my experience uh, of people up in the mountains in Kenya, uh, up in the high country in, in, in Ethiopia, up in the Aya village and, and, and things, um, it just, if every American did that, if every Westerner did that, um, the world would be a very different place, mm. you know? And, uh, and I think just, uh, you know, and this goes to the whole thing in sports, be it analytics, be it com you know, competitive, whatever it's, 
in the end of the day, we're all just people, we're all just humans, right? We're all just trying to make our way in the 80 some odd years we get on this planet. Yeah. Um, so just be a little nice to each other, yeah. you know, and respect what other people are bringing to the table and what they're offering you. Um, I got way more out of the relationships with all these, all these wonderful people I met in Africa than I ever offered, you know? Um, and, and I think, I think my colleagues would say the same. Um, we had a, a really elite, elite group of scientists working on this project. Yes, you there's did. literally no, there's no one in the world you could have picked that was better. Right. Um, and, and any one of us would tell you that we learned more than we taught wow. any one of us. I guarantee you that. Wow. Doc, great way to wrap up. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for tuning into the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. We have a huge announcement coming up very soon, but in the meantime, if you're looking for additional information for your own career as a coach or to bring credible board-certified coaching to your employee team members, feel free to reach out to us anytime. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. Now, next week's episode might just be the most important episode of the past year in terms of the impact of your life. We're going to be talking about how to create your own powerful personal vision to make the coming year a year like you've never had before. We've talked about this before. We've done this before. We're taking a much deeper dive. We're going to lay out the specifics. We're going to walk you through the process. We probably spent more time on this episode than any episode to date. That's over five years. And we hope you find it valuable as you move into the fresh new year. And now it's time to be a Catalyst. This is Dr. Brad Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week. And I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst 360 podcast, or maybe over on the YouTube coaching channel.